Going beyond the headlines? Getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Well, we remember the trial that saw the acquittal of Saskatchewan farmer Gerald Stanley in the death of Colton Bushy, and it was shortly after that that the federal government introduced Bill C-75, a bill that was looking at reforming the criminal justice system in our country. And part of Bill C-75 was the elimination of peremptory challenges I want to bring in Nader Hassan. He's a criminal and constitutional lawyer at Stockwoods LLP, adjunct professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. Nader, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, it was really after the Stanley trial that we started talking more and more about peremptory challenges. Uh, A lot of our listeners weren't really clear on what they are. Tell me what a peremptory challenge is. Yeah, well, you're right. They've been around forever. Uh, historians put it uh, the year 1166 in England, and we've, and we've had them in our system since Confederation, uh, if, if in fact, before. What it is is it allows uh, both the prosecution and the defense to excuse an otherwise qualified juror without giving a reason. And in most cases, for most offenses, each side gets 12 of these peremptory challenges, where the charge is first-degree murder, each side gets 20, up to 20. They don't have to use all of them, but they have up to 20 in those cases. Now, take us through the whole process of selecting a jury, because I hate to admit it, I think a lot of us, we just watch U.S. TV and we see how it's done in U.S. courts. I'm not sure if there's some similarities there or not, but can you give me an idea of how ultimately that jury is chosen? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, And it varies a little bit province to province, because... Um, each province is in charge of assembling its own jury rules. So there's a front-end process and there's a back-end process. Peremptory challenges are, us- are really the last step in the process. So the province is in charge of sending out these questionnaires to various households across the province, and, and these are jury questionnaires. And you're supposed to, by law, you're required to fill them out and send them back. Um, and, and then, assuming you do send them back, you will eventually, if you're qualified to serve, uh, meaning you're a Canadian citizen and you don't have a, a, a criminal record, you will be eventually called um, to, to attend at the courthouse on a given day. And then if your name is drawn out of a hat, you will sit in the court as a prospective juror. And if your name is further drawn, you will come forward. And the judge will ask you, uh, is there any reason why you can't sit on this trial for the next however many weeks? Is it going to cause you undue hardship? And if you say no, um, then it, there may be a for-cause question to gauge your, your impartiality. Um, and if you pass that through that hurdle, then you will be sworn as a juror, and you'll be sitting as part of the jury for that trial unless either the defense or the prosecution exercises their peremptory mm. challenge on you. So the defense or the prosecution, they don't ask a bunch of questions of these jurors. That's up to the judge. And then ultimately the defense or the prosecution gets to say, yeah, we're going to keep that juror or we're not. Well, that, that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the short answer is we're, we don't allow the type of um, free-flowing jury voir dire that they have in some, some U.S. Yeah. jurisdictions that you may have seen on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, The judge will ask a couple of very basic questions, 
any reason why you can't sit on this jury. And then some people will say, well, it will cause me undue hardship. I'm the only income earner at my house, and I can't take that amount of time off of work. Um, the judge won't ask many questions. Sometimes, because of the nature of the case, um, the, the defense is allowed to ask what's called a for-cause challenge question. In other words, is the fact that the accused is an indigenous person, is that going to interfere with your ability to judge this case impartially? Mm. Uh, and the purpose of those questions is to try to ensure that we don't have people who harbor bias or discriminatory or prejudicial ideas sitting as jurors. But if they pass through that threshold, um, then there really aren't any more questions, unlike the American system. And then people are ultimately exercising their peremptory challenges based on the jurors' reactions to the questions or, or based on the jurors' body language. What about based on the jurors' skin color? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where it gets really dicey. At the end of the day, um, I think it would be uh, in violation of the Charter to exercise your peremptory challenges in a discriminatory way. In other words, to, to um, get rid of a, per, of, a, of a particular ethnic group uh, because you think that that particular ethnic group will be hostile uh, uh, to, to your client. Um, that said, I, I do think it is perfectly legitimate for um, defense counsel, and this is how defense counsel use the peremptory challenges all, all the time, to try to ensure some diversity on the jury. I happen to think that, that diverse groups of people are better decision makers. I'm talking about ethnic diversity, gender diversity, age diversity. I want a mix of people on that jury. I think, I think you're less likely to have people engage in groupthink if there's a diverse jury. Now, having said all that, Bill C-75 is saying they want to get rid of this whole process, the peremptory challenge. And so what's your concern when you take that right away from the defense or the prosecution in a trial? Well, I think it's crazy. I think it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Hmm. I think peremptory challenges have served a very useful function literally since the 12th century. And there's, there's ways of reforming the process, ways of fixing it without getting rid of them altogether. If the federal government is truly concerned about the discriminatory use of the peremptory challenge, um, let's guard against the abuse of these peremptory challenges. Like I said, I think it would be a violation of the charter um, to use them in a discriminatory way. So let's, let's codify that. They have a system in the United States where this, this process is proceduralized. It was named after a, a uh, U.S. Supreme Court case in 1986 called Batson v. Kentucky. It's a very simple procedure. If I think that my opponent is using the peremptory challenge in a discriminatory way, I just stand up and say, hey, this, this, uh, this prosecutor has just struck mm. the last three black jurors. I think they're using their peremptory challenge in a discriminatory way. The judge will then say, hey, I think defense counsel is on to something. Prosecutor, uh, tell me why you struck those last jurors, and, and it better be for a racially neutral reason. And if they can't do it, then we win that challenge, and that juror will be sworn. And, and what that, even if you don't win at that challenge, the fact that you have this procedure, I think, has a mitigating effect on people's conduct. Uh, because no one, let's be honest here, no one wants to be called out for being a racist. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that would be, if, you're, if the feds were truly concerned about the abuse or the discriminatory use of a peremptory challenge, that, in my mind, is an easy fix. 
that allows us to guard against discrimination without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Good point on this, and we'll see where this goes when it comes to uh, the passage of C-75. Nader, thanks so much for bringing the perspective into this. Thanks for having me. Nader Hassan, he's a criminal constitutional lawyer and an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. It's 417.